The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, March the 18th, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We are recording remotely again today, as we did last week, but as you all know, the situation has dramatically changed over the last seven days, with increasingly drastic measures being introduced to limit the spread of coronavirus. The Irish Times itself was directly affected with Sunday's announcement that one of our colleagues had tested positive for COVID-19. Our offices on Tara Street remained closed for two days, while deep cleaning took place there, and that has now been completed. But we are still essentially producing the newspaper and all our digital services remotely, something which is unprecedented in the 160 year history of the Irish Times. In a little while, we're going to discuss last night's address to the nation by the Taoiseach and some of the other political questions which this crisis raises over the next few days and weeks. But first, I'm I'm joined by our political editor, Pat Leahy, just to talk about what our working days have been like and what our professional, our professional lives have changed. Pat, how's it been for you? Well, uh, it's been different. I'm talking to you here, uh, not from my oak panelled study with the portraits of former political editors looking down upon me, but uh, because uh, my uh, kids are at home and they're trying to do some schoolwork, or at least that's what they promised me they're doing while uh, while I'm on this. So I'm in my uh, I'm in my bedroom here and. Um, yeah, we're, we're obviously, some of us were off over the weekend. We're back today. Leinster House is still open. Don't know how long more that is going to operate for. It's on restricted hours already. The doll is meeting tomorrow, so we'll be... Uh, we'll be in there for that. But obviously all of the social distancing protocols, etc., uh, will be observed in there. So, you know... I, I, I suppose um, we talked about the Taoiseach's uh, speech last night in due course. But one of the things that is becoming very clear is that this is going to last for more than a week or two. It's going to last possibly for several months. So uh, how, I suppose, workplaces adapt to that. But from our particular point of view, how the country's political institutions function with that is something that I think we're just going to have to figure out as we go along. Very clearly, we're in a interregnum between after an election, but with no new government formed at the moment. And it's very hard to see how a new government is going to be formed in these circumstances. And yet we know that a new government must be formed because we cannot continue indefinitely with a government approved by the last doll while a new doll is in place. So I'm afraid I've got more questions than answers at this stage, Hugh. Just to explain to our listeners as well, they may not know your your oak panelled uh, office is a figment of your imagination. You don't even have a desk in the Irish <laughs> Times, actually, because none of the political <laughs> staff do. Your office is actually within Leinster House, in the building of Leinster House. Yeah, that's right. Um, our the Irish Times uh, offices in the uh, uh, in the, the are in the Leinster House complex. So no longer in the in the old Leinster House, the original Leinster House, 
building, or at least most of our desks aren't there. Journalists are kind of scattered around the complex a little bit. Some of us, uh, my colleagues Marie O'Halloran and uh, Miriam Lord, have their offices or their desks right behind the Dáil Chamber. Um, uh, Harry McGee and Jennifer Bray and Fiek Kelly and I have our desks uh, in slightly more removed location, but still within the in a in a, in a, an adjoining building within the Leinster House uh, complex. Um, so yeah, as I say, the complex is still open, though it's operating on reduced hours. The moment it closes at uh, six o'clock, they like to have people out. Uh, by that time because obviously they're operating on reduced staff themselves and it's difficult to see how a normal parliamentary timetable could be restored in the current circumstances. How the political parties and the House authorities structure a week that has Parliament functioning uh, in the future I, I guess we just have to we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see at the very least I think um, it's going to be on much more reduced hours reduced personnel so one of the things that they've arranged for tomorrow's sitting is that there'll only be a representative group of TDs in attendance I think it's 48 or 49 TDs will sit in the chamber so that they uh, can maintain the appropriate distance between between one another, I guess, like ourselves, a lot more work will be done will be done remotely. I think also TDs themselves, in terms of their work in their clinics, are beginning to move towards that model as well. So I think that people are just beginning to work out what this entirely new way of working is uh, is going to be. But within Lancer House, there's obviously the additional concern that this is one of the democratic institutions of the state and parliament needs to function with both credibility and authority, I think. So, you know, we'll see the emergency legislation will be debated tomorrow, but obviously in a very different environment, a very different way than might previously have been imagined. Can I ask you something? And it's always terrible to ask you something which I don't know if you know the answer to it, but is it um, constitutional for the parliament or a body representing the parliament to meet to work remotely as we're doing here now or is there a legal restriction on on physically being in 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 the houses of parliament uh big that's a big question i think so their work such as the scrutiny of legislation and so on uh some of that can be done remotely but the legislating itself the voting through of the bills, for instance, that we will see tomorrow, that requires at least some TDs to be on site because the voting must take place in the Dáil Chamber. We don't have uh, arrangements for remote uh, remote voting. So all that is required for legislation to be passed is for a majority of TDs in the House. So what they've agreed tomorrow is that a representative sample of a numerically representative or proportionate number of TDs from each party. Now, I don't expect there to be divisions tomorrow, but at some stage over the coming months, there presumably will be divisions and how they manage the voting on that, I think, will probably be agreed collaboratively between the whips and the Court's office and the House uh, authorities. There are ways that it could be done, but it will require everybody to cooperate. But as to 
a fully remote, remotely functioning parliament, I, I, I don't think that can be done legally, at least as, uh, at present. Now, let's turn to the Taoiseach's address to the nation last night. It was a historic moment. Um, he seemed to me to hit the right tone for pretty much all of it. The, the key line which we had as our headline on the Irish Times this morning was there's a storm ahead. Um, how do you think he did? Yeah, I think he did. Um, I think he did pretty well. And just certainly the reaction in the media this morning is largely positive. Uh, anecdotally, um, he, he seems to have been uh, adjudged by people to have, have struck the right note. Personally, I didn't think it was the rhetorical masterpiece that some people did, but perhaps probably a lot more importantly than that. I thought he gave the right messages and he struck the right tone. So what he was saying to us was, this is going to be bad. There is much worse to come. It's going to last a lot longer than people might have originally thought. There will be more extensive restrictions, a greater shutdown, particularly for older people and more vulnerable people with pre-existing illnesses. But the government is taking steps to help people. It is doing, uh, it will do everything it can, both in terms of provision of healthcare, the, you know, testing uh, for the virus and the attempts to stop its spread. Uh, It will seek to help people financially, people that have lost jobs and so forth. But the third message then I thought was that the government will need everybody's help and cooperation to do this. And he was very much trying to convey the message that, look, this is going to be bad, but we're all in this together. And if we pull together, then, you know, then we stand the best chance of of coming out of it with at least most of what we brought into it intact. Over the last 24 hours, we've heard uh, announcements from a number of governments around the world, in the UK and the United States in particular, about really major uh, financial interventions in their economies in the face of the what's, I think, almost inevitably a, a looming recession alongside the uh, alongside the the pandemic. We've we've heard we've had uh, a number of significant moves in relation to social welfare uh, and business support to some extent, but we haven't really heard from Pascal Donoghue in the same way as we've heard from the Chancellor of, Exchequer, of the Exchequer in the United Kingdom, for example. Yeah, and um, I I think we may. In due course, now the government has announced it, uh, you know, the availability of three billion euro package uh, to deal with that. That was announced last week. But to be honest, I think that is likely to be only the beginning of it. I mean, if you look at the sort of announcements that were coming out of both the UK and the United States yesterday, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer announcing a 300 million pounds sterling uh, a package to uh, to assist businesses and uh, and citizens in the United States. Donald Trump talking about eight hundred and fifty billion dollars package, which will include he, he wants a checks for every American thousand dollar checks to be to be to be sent to every American to stimulate the economy. These are measures unprecedented even during the financial crisis and it's um, you know on these numbers alone and they're being replicated in Spain and Italy and other places Germany this is 
the biggest response, government response to anything since probably since the Second World War, bigger than the financial, uh, bigger than the financial crisis. I, I expect we will probably hear more. I'd say three billion will only be the beginning of it from uh, Pascal Donahue. The Taoiseach said in his message last night that there was uh, that the government was prepared that it would be expensive. The government could borrow billions and would borrow uh, billions. Uh, I mean, there will be all this will have to be paid for down the line. But um, I think the what governments are everywhere are concentrating on at the moment is the need to keep some measure of economic activity going and the need to actually pay for the measures to deal with the to deal with the crisis. Yeah, interestingly, uh, David McWilliams in his Irish Times column on Saturday um, flagged this idea of just of just giving money to people, to everybody, as opposed to the traditional forms of quantitative easing, I suppose, which is just giving money to the banks and ultimately to the better off in in society. And and David argues in, in that piece, and I've heard him argue it since, that there isn't actually a payback on that. You can print money. There is no fear of inflation. Just inject money into the economy and give it to people to give them the confidence that they need in the face of this this looming worry that everybody has. Uh, yes, I read his piece and obviously it was read closely in the White House as well. The idea, this idea of helicopter money, simply giving away money to everyone has been around um, for, uh, for quite some time. And obviously it's unlikely to prove an unpopular measure, I would have thought. But clearly... You reach a point with the giving away of money where the currency itself is debased and uh, and confidence in fiat money collapses in in that regard. Obviously, we're a hell of a long way away from uh, from that now. And I was talking to one senior civil service yeah, servant yesterday who was making the point in, in a reasonably upbeat assessment of uh, of where we were that you will see some of the lessons that administrations learned and central banks learned during the financial crisis applied in this crisis. So the famous phrase of Mario Draghi that he would do whatever it takes to save the euro is famously seen as the point at which the euro crisis passed. And so it's no accident that you saw the Chancellor of the Exchequer repeatedly use that phrase to say that the government would uh, would do whatever it takes to a meet the costs of the crisis and b to uh, to to keep the econ- uh, economy afloat and keep the economy stimulated. And I think the hope is among policymakers and central bankers and so forth is that. The, the 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 wasted years of two thousand and eight to two thousand and eleven before cent- before uh, the central bank or the Euro- European Central Bank made that intervention during the financial crisis that we will have learned and we won't spend years uh, making the damage worse and waste wasting time with ineffective remedies that you go straight to the big bazooka. The problem is, of course, if the big bazooka doesn't work, then you don't have a bigger bazooka, so to speak. Well, indeed. And uh, Patrick Honahan, the, the former governor of the Irish Central Bank, is making exactly that point, I think, in today's Irish Times in, a, in, in an opinion piece that the, the mistakes of 2008 to 2011, and there were some really serious mistakes, it won't be made. But there is a question whether, you know, the usual the usual tools, the interest rate cuts and so on um, are, are sufficient to the task. We are really in uncharted water here. Yeah, we've never seen we've never seen anything like it. Um, and... 
so the, I suspect, I don't know this, but I, I, I suspect that policymakers don't know if these measures are going to work either, both economically, and that's clearly important, but also with regard to stopping the spread of the virus. What we're operating on is is hope, informed hope that the measures that have proved effective elsewhere and whose lack of implementation is seen as part of the reason why Italy is in, has had such a difficult time uh, with the spread of the, the, the coronavirus. So policymakers hope that these measures work, but they're not sure that they, that they will work. They're not sure if the spread of the virus will follow the same sort of patterns here as it has done elsewhere. We, the Taoiseach was talking about 15,000 cases by, uh, by the end of the month. I think at that stage when, you know, hospitals are under extreme pressure, when there's a large number of people infected in the community, when deaths are being reported daily uh, from the virus, I think things will look different then. And I think the difficulty for the government and for all of us will be if the measures that they have taken don't work at that stage or are not seen by the public to be working, then I think we could be in a, a very different, very difficult space. We know, and I think that's part of what the teacher was doing last night in order to prepare people to manage their expectations for a serious deterioration. But if people feel that the government is not on top of this and that the measures that they've taken are not working, then I think that has implications for our entire political system uh, that, you know, could be quite destabilising. Although we have seen in Italy, for example, that as as the situation got worse and as the measures introduced by the government there got stricter and stricter, that as far as I can see, people are going along with them. You know, they are faced with a you're faced with a threat this serious People will do what they're told for a while, at least, although this question of how long this goes on, it seems to me, is absolutely key. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, I think I think they will. And people will want, of course, people will want the measures taken by the government, but with the support of the other political parties, they will want those to work. They will be disposed, well disposed to uh, uh, to to backing to backing the government and to believing that the public health authorities uh, that the actions they've taken are 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 working and uh, and are well conceived, but if we get to a situation where things are a lot worse than than people expected or go on a lot longer, then um, then I think that confidence will be endangered, will be undermined, and ultimately, you know, and and ultimately will dissipate. And that's when I think we could be in a very difficult situation as a society. Pat, I mean, since we spoke, it seems like a very long time ago, but it was only about five days ago, the Green Party essentially withdrew from uh, government formation talks um, because its proposal that a national government should be formed to deal with this situation wasn't really taken on board by the other parties. Um, and one could argue the pros and cons of that. It's in the past, in the distant past, in the, in the world in which we, we live in now. But it seems to me, looking at it, 
I can't see how government formation, as we were discussing it only three or four weeks ago, the process of negotiation, the uh, the attention of the, the current leaders of the caretaker government being drawn into discussions about who's going to do what, the whole business of ha- uh, having new ministers appointment appointed who have to read themselves into their briefs. Is that the kind of thing we want to see happening over the next four, eight weeks? Well, it's very difficult to see how that, I agree with you, I think it's very difficult to see how that that process takes place. On the other hand, it, in a way, it must take place because we cannot continue with a government that was elected by or approved by the last doll that no longer has uh, has a majority. And to be honest, Hugh, I don't, I don't know the answer to this question. How that circle is squared? On the one hand. The government, a new government must take office. But on the other hand, none of us can can see a realistic process for that happening. And I, I think, to be honest, that is a question that the, the parties and their leaderships themselves are wrestling with. Now, we may know more about it tomorrow after the, the, the Dáil meets. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are, are due to have uh, talks today, tomorrow and uh, on Friday on a possible coalition government. We'll just have to see what happens and if those talks, uh, if those talks progress. But the situation has changed so much from last week, from this day uh, last week, that it, it, it's hard to see how those plans could remain in place. And yes, there there must be there must be. Uh, assuming we all wish to continue living in a democracy, then a new government must at some stage be formed over the coming uh, over the coming months but the nature of those the nature of those negotiations surely is just is just fundamentally and profoundly changed nobody's going to be going into a room setting out a 5 year program for government in the next few weeks are they no this is the only issue that the government will be dealing with uh, certainly for the foreseeable future in terms of 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 months and who knows uh, perhaps for for longer than that it is important for our system that that government is answerable to the doll and it is, that is capable of being held to account for its actions uh, by, by the doll. And there is, and while there is a great sense of, of national unity and purpose at, uh, at the moment, there will be, uh, there will be differences and difficulties ahead and it is right that the government should be interrogated on those both by the media but also by parliament as is its constitutional duty and I just don't think that that is likely to be set aside nor to express a personal view nor I think should it be set aside and uh, you know political systems continue to work in times of in times of, 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 of warfare. You know, the House of Commons continued to meet, albeit that there was a national government, the House of Commons continued to meet during the Second World War. There was an American presidential election in nineteen forty four. I I don't think that those institutions and our democratic way of governing ourselves, albeit that some of its procedures will have to change, I don't think it can be set aside, particularly in the face of a crisis whose extent and 
and and whose length in te- in, in in time terms we, we we can't we can't guess at at the moment. Now you, you mentioned the House of Commons, and and one of the many troubling things that's emerged over the last the last week or so is is quite a um, a severe difference in the strategy being uh, undertaken in the United Kingdom. Although that has also apparently changed quite a lot in the last two days, uh, in terms of its approach to the spread of COVID nineteen, from the approach being taken by Ireland, they're our nearest neighbour. They're the only country with which we share a border. Are you talking to anybody in the Irish government? Uh, what what is their view of that? Well, I think it, one can say objectively at first that, you know, there has been a, there's been a fair bit of inconsistency and in jumping around in the approach of both the British and American uh, governments. Um, uh, to to the Irish government's credit, there 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 hasn't been that their strategy for dealing with the outbreak has seemed um, a lot more consistent from the outset than it has in London or in uh, or in Washington. Privately, some senior Irish officials express sort of bemusement at at the approach in Britain, which it seemed to me, which seemed at the beginning to be uh, quite laissez-faire in 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 many respects, uh, has suddenly pivoted to a situation where there's the, this massive fund that the Chancellor has announced and the requirement for elderly people to stay. Uh, to stay indoors. So I think Irish, uh, uh, Irish officials have enough on their own plates without worrying about what's going on elsewhere and uh, and certainly would be careful, I think, about, uh, about you know, pointing fingers uh, anywhere else. But to say that some of the people I spoke to didn't quite understand what the British were up to um, is an understatement. Well, they appear to have a different theory of the case, although their theory of the case seems to have evolved again over the last few days. Yeah, this this herd immunity uh, idea, but that requires that uh, an awful lot of people become infected, and now they've suddenly they've suddenly taken steps to uh, to prevent many people from becoming infected. So, um, I mean, you know, perhaps you know someone can explain it to us as part of a coherent strategy, but. It certainly has many of the characteristics of incoherence. Pat, the world has changed in the last couple of weeks. You you wrote a you wrote a column on Saturday um, about that. It's there's no point in indulging in, in idle speculation. We don't know what the next few weeks and months and indeed years are going to bring. But I think it is fair to say that you know the many discussions you and I have had over the last couple of years about Irish politics and what's happening and the the, the desire for change which the election represented and the position of their various parties. All these things have been upturned and overturned and we're going to be talking about them in a very different way, in a very different world when we do get through this. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think that we've, we've talked before about the nature of change in Irish politics. My own view, as you know, is that the big change, while it was, you know, slow and incremental change in our political system was underway, reflecting the changes in society before the 2008 uh, financial crash, that is the event that turbocharged the changing of our political system. And that change has been going on since. So this change that, you know, the very dramatic desire for change that we saw in the general election campaign just concluded. That election campaign was only one of, it was the third in a series of change elections uh, beginning in 2011, continuing in 2016. Now, the events of, of, of recent weeks and the uh, events of the next few months I think are at, at least of the magnitude 
of the financial crisis um, in terms of how they will affect Irish politics into the future. Um, my own view is that if the if the government is seen to have at the conclusion of uh, of uh, of this, and this won't last for forever. It, we don't know exactly how long it's going to take, but it will at some point in the not too distant future be over. And if the government is seen to have handled it well at that stage, if our death rates compare favourably with uh, with other other countries, particularly with the UK, um, then I think that, you know, f- the establishment parties who are likely to be running the government from inside or, 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 or outside it over the over the coming months, you know, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, that the old political establishment, then I think that that will be to their credit and to their benefit. And it could, it, you know, it, it, it could be the firm foundations for a continued collaboration between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in government into the future. If, on the other hand, that is not the outcome. If the government is not seen to have handled the crisis well, if our death rates are as bad or worse than many other countries, if a sense develops, you know, that the government is flailing around, is not in charge of the situation, then I think it has the potential to destroy the two old uh, parties in, 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 in government. Uh, you know, whether a new government is formed between them or whether this continues with Fianna Fáil's, with Fianna Gael in government and Fianna Fáil effectively facilitating from uh, from outside, then I, yeah, I, I think the consequences for them could be, uh, could be terminal. Um, I think you would find in that instance that not only would the government be blamed for, the government parties be blamed for the management of the crisis, of this crisis, they they would be blamed in a way for all the shortcomings of the health service that have led us to the current the current situation. All of which is a rather long-winded way of saying, I think if it goes okay, I think it would be good for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. If it doesn't, I, I think it could be the end of them. But all of this will also be against the backdrop of a completely transformed global economic system, questions about globalisation and movement, the nature of the world economy, the nature of the European Union. I mean, who knows where Brexit goes from here, for example, and that's only one small example of these things, where the rise of nativism in Western countries goes after this particular event. It seems to me it could go either way. It's really impossible to tell. Yes, Um and I think you're already, you know, seeing some signs. I was talking to somebody in France yesterday who was adamant that this marks, he cited the inability of the French authorities to, um, you know, to, to sufficient hand sanitizers and equipment and that sort of thing, which uh, many people thought could be, was made in France, but apparently isn't. And he was adamant in his belief that, you know, for the French, this marks the end of glo- of globalisation. And I think depending on the severity of the crisis and the numbers of people who die, um, I think you could see that sentiment reflected in other, in, in other places. But I, I think, you know, in common with the answer I gave the last question, I think an awful lot depends on exactly how bad it is, levels of mortality, people's personal experience of the crisis to come. Um, and a lot of that is very difficult to foresee at the moment. 
Indeed it is. Pat, listen, thanks very much indeed for, for coming on today. Thanks also to Declan Conlon for producing. Uh, before I go, this is the bit where I ask you all to subscribe to the Irish Times. And by international standards, we are a very small media company owned by a charitable trust. And that means that we depend on you, our listeners and our readers for our survival. Of course, everyone's priority right now is to maintain health and protect life. But at some point, we're all going to get through this and we're always going to need reliable journalism that we can trust. So if you can at all, please go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for, for the first month. Also, just to mention that you can find our new Confronting Coronavirus podcast in our Worldview podcast feed, which, like this podcast, is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, Acast and all the other major platforms, and also at irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 